Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. Um, as Carrie said, my name is, that is slipping out, sorry about that, uh, Tyler Holloway. I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage Park, and I've got the distinct pleasure today of being able to open the word with you guys. Uh, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to read the first 11 verses there so you can follow along. If you don't have a Bible but would like one, there are some uh, on either side of the tech booth in the back, which you can grab and follow along and then keep as our gift to you if you would like that. And then finally, uh, if you are a user of the Bible app, we have a live event in there that you can uh, open up and, and follow along as well. So plenty of options as far as that goes. Um, so Trent asked me a couple of weeks ago if I could preach this week because he was going to be out. Uh, and I was like, okay, is there anything you have in mind? He goes, I'll just, you know, pick a passage, which is like the most unhelpful thing to hear. You know, like, you remember flashbacks to high school English when you had to write a term paper and your, or your teacher was just like, just write anything you want. You're like, it's going to take me as long to figure out what I want to write about as it will to just write the stinking paper. So just tell me and then I'll go. But uh, fortunately, he gave me a lot of time. And so I spent, you know, almost all of it trying to figure out the passage. And then I was like trying to rush at the last minute. But this is, a, as I kind of thought and prayed about it over the past few weeks, was drawn to this passage in Philippians uh, because it's one of my favorite passages in, in everything that Paul has written in scripture. And it, it's something that to me is so powerful because it's something I always have to be reminded of. Like I know it's true. It's nothing groundbreaking that's going to be new, but it's so uh, difficult to live the way that Paul calls us here. It's something I always need to be reminded of. And Paul doesn't just call us and say, well, good luck, you know, go figure it out on your own. But he roots his exhortation and his encouragement and his command to us in what Christ has done for us. And so I think that's a really beautiful thing that he does. So if you there, if you're there, we're going to go ahead and read it's Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I confess that I do not live this out well enough to, to stand up here and teach it, Lord, but we pray uh, that you would use this passage to convict me and to convict us on how that you've called us to live as your people in this world, uh, that our lives together would be marked by the radical transformation that the gospel has wrought in each of us, and that as we gather together, we would have a love and a unity uh, that reflects the inner transformation we have. Lord, this, this next few minutes, I pray that your word would become alive to us, that your spirit would enliven it in our hearts, and that we'd be changed. And as we leave here, we would go and wrestle with these things and how they can be more and more true in our lives. And Father, I also want to take a minute just in light of uh, another tragedy this week that we see so often, Lord, that uh, to lift up the victims in, in New Zealand, uh, that mass murder. Um, Lord, your, your scripture 
uh, tells us to weep with those who weep. And we may not share the same faith as uh, the people that were the victims here, but there's no qualifier on that command, Lord. And so we want to um, just lift up their pain. Lord, we've seen things like this happen here. Uh, and so the fact that it's around the world, Lord, shouldn't not make us care, Lord. Um, be with those people. We pray that you would somehow uh, be at work, even in the midst of some tragedy. And we uh, also pray and long for the day in which you say you will return and make um, evil a thing of the past, Lord. Um, come quickly uh, and protect this world and from the, the evil one and the things that happen, Lord. Again, as we open up Philippians now, Lord, do what you will with this passage, and may we be a people that reflects what Paul calls us to. These things we pray in your son's name. Amen. So Paul starts here in this kind of this passage by giving some conditional statements, right? Like, if then. If this is true, then go do this. But it's a little different because he's not actually giving them a conditional statement. Like, it's not something that he's risking and saying, well, maybe this is true, maybe it's not. Like, it's almost the same as me coming up to you and going, hey, if it's humid tomorrow, and you're going to be like, we live in Houston. Like, it's going to be humid. Get on with your point. You know, Paul is kind of doing that same thing, and you can tell just by what he asks them to do. It's like such a low bar. It's almost ludicrous that he frames it like this, but he's doing it for uh, kind of a rhetorical flourish. Now, what does he say? He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, like if you, Christians, if you, church in Philippi, are you encouraged at all by the fact that you are loved and forgiven and accepted in Jesus Christ? Like any bit, any at all. Is there any comfort in love that you've been adopted by the God of the universe, that his love has poured out on you? Is that comforting on a bad day? Is that something that you look at and like, I'm so comforted by what God has done for me? Even just a smidge of that. Is there any participation in the Spirit? Have you seen God's Spirit at work amongst you there in this church or here today? Is that something that you've seen at all? Like God working in your life, in the lives of those around you, in your church community as a whole? And he says, if there's any affection and sympathy, do you guys have any concern for each other at all? Any love? Any love for this God who has done these things for you? Do you have any affection or sympathy for me? You know, Paul, who'd planted this church and has kept up a relationship with them. You know, he forms this as this conditional, but really he's going, since these things are true, since these things should be part and parcel with any Christian life, they're basic realities of the faith, therefore Paul has something to ask. He gives this he gives the Philippians this command. He says, make my joy complete. You know, do something for me. Make me happier than I am right now. Do something to make me glad. And it's interesting because again, it was Paul kind of building this. He's building this uh, kind of point and trying to make it a very powerful ask for these people. So he makes it personal, right? He says, make my joy complete. So think about it like this. If, you know, I, my wife and I landed here about six months ago, I think, if you kind of go back, and we've been serving on staff, we've started to get to know people, build relationships, um, but it hasn't been that long, right? And so if I were to ask one of you guys to go out to lunch, and, you know, about halfway through, I look and go, I have a favor to ask. And the first thing he goes, okay, knew it was coming. Uh, the second thing you'd go is, Okay, what is it? Because you might not know me that well, but we've had some time together. I work at the church. You probably say, if there's something I can do for you, then I, sure, I'd like to do it. But really, the, the size of that ask is pretty small. Like, I can't ask you to do something crazy because we just don't have that much relational capital for me to call on. Now, think instead of that, think about Trent. For those of you that have been around and been at Heritage Park uh, for a long time, Trent came in 2007. So he's going on about 12 years as the pastor here. And so if you've been there that whole time, or been here that whole time, and Trent asks you to lunch and says, hey, listen, based on my over a decade of being your pastor, based on 
my trying to love you and serve you and teach you well based on serving alongside of you after Harvey or maybe going on the mission field together. Remember that time I did your son's wedding or your, your mother's funeral? All of these things that we've done and built this relationship over 12 years. I have a favor I need to ask you. Like what Trent has the kind of permission to ask is much bigger than what I do because there is a strong relationship that has gone back over a decade. That's essentially what Paul is doing here too with the Philippians. So Paul, as best we can tell, we'll get to this in a few weeks. Um, In Acts 16, when we go back to Acts, uh, Paul plants the church in Philippi. It's about 80-50 that happens. And then fast forward, Paul probably writes this letter as best people can kind of date it in AD 62. So it's that same about 12-year time frame that he's had this relationship with him. Now, Paul didn't stay the whole time. He hasn't been like the pastor in Philippi over those 12 years. He went and traveled around and started other churches. But we can tell they maintain this relationship. Paul talks about in some of his other letters that this is one of the churches that are supporting him financially, helping him to do what it is that he's doing. And then he also mentions later on uh, in chapter 2 here that there's somebody with him in Philippi or in Rome where he's in prison at this time that's from Philippi. And he describes that guy as their messenger and uh, a minister to his needs. So this relationship, we don't exactly know what it all looked like, but continued to grow. And they continued to interact and kind of keep up with one another. And you can see Paul's affections for the Philippians if later you go back and read uh, Philippians chapter 1. Because he's just outpouring how much he cares about this church and how much they mean to him. I think that it would be reciprocated by the Philippians that this is a really strong relationship. That they care for each other. And so when Paul says, hey, if these things are true, and I know they are, then I need you to do something for me. The, the natural inclination of this church would go, well, well, tell me what that is. Paul, what do you need? You're in prison. All these difficult things are happening. How can we help you, as Paul says, make my joy complete? That's where it's interesting because he doesn't ask, hey, I, I need this. I need supplies. I need resources. I need you to do something to benefit me. What Paul says that he needs in order to have complete joy is for them to be different in the way that they treat each other for their relationships in this one church to be affected. What does he say? He says, you can complete my joy by doing this, by being of the same mind, by having the same love, by being in full accord and of one mind. See, Paul's basically saying, hey, what I want you guys to do isn't anything for me. I want you to do something for each other, that you have the same attitude and the same love and the same spirit and the same purposes. Now, this is kind of repetitive. The the main point of what Paul's getting at is not found by looking at, okay, what exactly does he mean by these four different things? It really just kind of runs parallel. Um, But he's looking slightly different at the same thing and saying, what I want you to do, what I need to have full joy in you, church and Philippi is for you guys to have a radical unity with each other, to be transformed by love for each other so that you are in lockstep in everything you do, in every part of your being. This is similar to what Jesus prays in John 17 in his high priestly prayer. He's praying for believers that are going to come after him, after he dies and goes to heaven. And he prays that we, uh, believers to follow him, may be one, even as he and the Father are one. So there's this idea that Jesus has, the Son of God says, Father, just as me and you are in unity together, may believers that follow after us be in the same type of unity. And Paul's picking up on this theme. And it's something that is driving his heart. And we know this because it's not the first time he's brought it up. See, we're dropping in in Philippians about a third of the way through the letter. And it's already the second time he's saying, hey, I need for you guys to be a unified body of believers. In verse, uh, sorry, in chapter 1, verse 27, right after he's kind of talked about uh, his affection for this church and then he's given them a little bit of an update about uh, his imprisonment and how God is using that. 
He says this, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, standing side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then he repeats it in chapter 2, kind of elaborates on that. See, Paul, a true spirituality, for Paul, a true spirituality or a, a living faith in Jesus Christ must necessarily drive us to unity together. And we find this in other writers in the Gospels as well, or in the New Testament. Uh, John is even more blunt in how he words this in 1 John. He says this, verse 20, uh, chapter 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So John kind of looks at this church that he's writing to and goes, hey, if you see Christians that say, I love God, but you don't see them loving other believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, something has gone seriously wrong there. And really these guys both are just echoing Jesus in John 13. When Jesus says this to his disciples, he says, I give you a new commandment. Love one another just as I have loved you. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So Jesus tells his disciples, hey, listen, the world around you, people that don't believe as you believe, should be able to look at the relationships you have in a church body and say there's something different about how those people treat each other, how they love each other, the unity that's between them. And on the flip side of that, Jesus kind of says that if, if people look at that and don't see that and say this doesn't make sense, then the world is justified in saying, do you guys even believe what you're saying? Because we don't see that in your life. And we, we kind of understand this implicitly. Like, we look and we talk about, okay, if we've had love and forgiveness poured out on us by the God of the universe, then it should pour out of us, too. Like, it should become more natural for us to be loving and forgiving people. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I heard on the radio, um, somebody had come forward, I think in South Carolina, and claimed the massive lottery jackpot that was about six months ago. I'm um, no one had claimed it for forever, and so people were starting to wonder if they'd lost the ticket. And then they, they come forward, and they remained anonymous, which is probably pretty smart. Um, but the thing that made the news for this is it's the largest single jackpot winner in history. Like, there'd been bigger jackpots in the lottery, but when that had been decided, you know, it had been split between two, three, four people. But with this one, it was the largest single winner, and they were going to take a lump sum. Uh, and according to the radio, after taxes and after everything came out, this person was going to net $850 million. And I went to lunch with Andrew either that day or the next day, and we were like talking about it and going like, what would you even like start buying? Like, what would be the first thing? And we had like no idea. Now, I'm sure we'd figure it out pretty quick if we had that kind of money. But like, just like that sum of money is so staggering. It's like Scrooge McDuck swimming around in a vat of coins type, you know, like wealth. It's unfathomable. But say I had won that money. You know, and say you knew that I had suddenly come into just this vast fortune that I couldn't spend even if I tried real, real hard. And then you came up to me and said, hey, Tyler, can I borrow like 10 bucks for this thing? I was like, ah, I, I can't swing that, man. I'm so sorry. You'd be like, what's wrong with you? You can't, like, you have so much money. How can you not spare this? To me, just such a small thing. In the same way, if we have this vast amount of love poured out of us, this, this is our experience, then how can we not become a more loving and unified people? We understand it, like, in theory, right? But then when we start talking the practicalities, it becomes really, really hard. Because I can say, I love, like, the church as a whole, or I love Christians, but then when I start trying to love an actual Christian it's a challenge, right? Like I can even say, I love Heritage Park Baptist Church, all these people. But then when I try and love you, that's harder, right? Because I know you. 
Like, and sometimes you make it really hard for me to love you by the things that you choose to do. And so if you could all work on that, it would be really helpful to me in my walk with God. But all joking aside, what's the problem? Is because if I've got more than a relationship with you that's like, hey, how's it going? Small talk, have a good week. And then we go our separate ways. Like if I start to get to know you, there are going to be times that you do things that I don't like or things that annoy me or things that frustrate me or I think this group should do this and you want to do this and you get your way. And we start to have this friction and this rub. And so the unity that we're called to have when I don't know you very well, it's like, yeah, we get along great. But then as we start to build a relationship, we experience some friction and some rub. And my natural tendency is going to be at that point to pull back and say, no, this is too hard. This is difficult. Your life is infringing on my life. And so that, that's uncomfortable for me. This is why it's so often the person that we have the most difficult time being unified with is our spouse or our children because we feel that rub constantly. But this is what Paul calls us to live into. He says, live in this way. So how are we going to do that? Because if we know anything from like human history, we're much better at disunity than unity. That comes really easy for us. We don't fall into unity. And so Paul says, this is how you're going to achieve that. If the only way to get to unity is to, to do what we find in verse 3. Where Paul writes this. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know, Paul says, don't act just out of a sense of trying to get ahead, out of this pride. But instead, place others in front of you and their needs before your own. Don't just look to your own interests. You know, there's no prohibition about looking out for yourself, trying to tend to the things that you need to tend to. But what Paul says is you don't have to forget about those, but are we the type of people that have the chance to just look up and look around and also make space for the interests of those around us? And this only happens, Paul says, when we clothe ourselves, what? In humility is how he starts verse 3. Do this in humility. The only way that we can become a community that's marked with this kind of radical loving unity is if we are individuals that are marked by humility. And often this is, this is so difficult for us because we don't even really have a great grasp sometimes on what it means to be a humble person. Right? Like we kind of know what it's not. We can say it's not that self-aggrandizing person that says, look at me, look at me. I accomplished this. I did all these great things. Tell me how great I am. Like that one's like, okay, we got that. That's easy. But so then we kind of try and default and say, well, if, if that's not humility, maybe it's the other side of it, kind of that self-abasement going around saying, hey, I don't really have anything to contribute. I don't, you know, do anything. I don't have skills. I don't, just don't, don't pay attention to me. Don't do but the problem on both sides of that is the focus is ultimately on me, either what I can do or what I can't do, either trying to keep the focus on me or trying to deflect all the focus. But when you do that, if you've ever been around that person, you just keep focusing on that person. Neither one of those is true humility that Scripture calls us to. Instead, humility as described by, by Scripture is just a lack of preoccupation with ourselves. C.S. Lewis, in his great book, Mere Christianity, describes it like this. Do not imagine that if you were to meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be the sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. See, he will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. I had a friend a couple of years ago who taught this passage, uh, and he used the example kind of to illustrate what a, a humble person really looks like uh, of William, Wilber, William Wilberforce. 
who I, some of you guys, if you're history buffs, might be familiar. He was kind of the driving force in England uh, in 1807 about abolishing the, the slave trade in the British Empire. Um, it was kind of the culmination of decades of just tireless pursuit of this goal. And finally, it comes to fruition in 1807, um, which that's a big deal. Like, that's a huge accomplishment. That guy wins at any, any, any dinner party he goes to where they start trying to one-up each other. You know, it's like, oh, I, I managed this project. I did this. My Christmas bonus was this. My kid accomplished this. Uh, I freed millions of people from slavery. Like, Okay, you win, William. You always do. Uh, But that's not how he carried himself. Even though he achieved something that we can't even fathom what that would look like, he carried himself as if it just wasn't that big of a deal. Um, The Duke of Wellington uh, met him one time. And the Duke of Wellington, again, if you're a history person, it's probably familiar, was also just a great man in this era. He's the guy that defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. So big accomplishment. Um, And he meets Wilberforce at one point, and then he writes to him a little bit later. And when he writes to him, he tells him this. Talking to William Wilberforce, he says, You have made me so entirely forget that you are a great man by seeming to forget it yourself. Despite amazing accomplishments in life, here is a man who just isn't preoccupied with those things. He's more interested in what's going on around him. And he's saying, Hey, tell me about yourself. What are you doing? Let me get to know you. I can care. If I'm humble, I can care about your interests because I'm putting in the time to actually learn about what your interests are rather than just trying to share my own. But how do we get there, right? Again, that, that's not helpful just to say, be unified. Okay, great. How do we do that? Well, be humble. Okay, how do I do that? It's like you could tell me, hey, Tyler, go dunk a basketball. That's easy to say. It's not happening. Like, it's just not. I do not have that physical capability to go out and do that. But Paul doesn't just tell us, hey, go and do this. He says, no, no, no. I'm going to show you how you can do that because I'm going to give you an example of what this looks like. So Paul does that in verse 5. We pick back up. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 5 in the ESV, which is what we're reading out of, is just a little bit wooden. It's kind of hard to get the sense of what that is. There's another translation, I think, that communicates it really well. And it just says this. It says, have this attitude, which is also in Christ Jesus. So Paul says the way that we get to be more humble is we consider the attitude that Christ Jesus had, and we try and reflect that in our own lives. And so what is that attitude? Well, Paul tells us, he says, who, being Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And when Paul says he was in the form of God, he's not saying that he was like God-like or had kind of a vague shape of God. No, this language actually means that he was essentially God. That being in the form of God meant he had all of the attributes, all of the qualities that God possesses were possessed in Jesus Christ. It's the same thing that John writes in John 1 where he tells us that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. That Paul is pointing us to the pre-existent Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and saying this is our starting point. Like God and his glory and his power. Uh, In Colossians 1 verse 15, Paul describes what this, uh, who Jesus was and he says this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So whatever picture, if we read the scripture, whatever picture we have in our mind about who Jesus was, who the Son of God is, it's not big enough. 
Like it's an infinitely large thing. And Paul says, despite that, despite being bigger and more powerful than anything we can comprehend, this person did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. What Paul means by that is that he didn't like clutch that equality. He didn't think, hey, I've got this. I need to use it to my advantage. Which that's the way our world works, right? Like we expect that if people have something that they can use to their advantage, some power, some privilege, uh, some ability, that they're going to do that in order to get ahead. It's what we're used to seeing. Even this week, uh, news kind of broke, and I don't know if you follow this or not. Um, I follow sports, and so it kind of came up a few times that I saw. Uh, there was this big fraud scandal that broke that they're calling Operation Varsity Blues. And what this was, uh, was just, I think over 50 people were arrested. Anyway, um, wealthy people were taking a lot of funds and paying to have their kids either have their SAT and ACT scores uh, inflated fraudulently, uh, or they were paying coaches, bribing coaches at universities uh, in the sports that people don't really follow that closely, like tennis and rowing and things like that. Um, they were bribing these coaches to list their student as an athletic recruit. Because if you're an athletic recruit, uh, the barrier for entrance goes from like here to like here. Like it just drops because they want you to come in and compete for sports. Uh, and so this is going on and affecting universities like Stanford and Yale and University of Texas and USC. I mean, like massive things going on. There was even one story that uh, one mother had spent $500,000 for her daughter to get her scores inflated uh, on one of her standardized tests and then to be listed as a, uh, a rowing recruit or a school on the West Coast. And then even though they'd already spent this, the daughter like didn't have the time to fill out the application for the school. And so she paid to have somebody else do that on her behalf as well. Like I, I read that and I was like, if your 18 year old can't be bothered for the time and energy to fill out the application, maybe spend your $500,000 somewhere else because it's probably not gonna work out super well. But really, that's not how that mindset thinks, right? Like, I'm going to take advantage of this, and I've got money. So when my daughter gets in, it doesn't matter if she goes to class. I'm going to use my advantage and money to figure out how to get her passing grades and do this. And do that. Like, that's how our world operates. Whatever advantage that we can have, whatever power we have, I leverage that for me. But what we find here is that's not how God operates. That despite more power, more privilege, more uh, glory than anything our mind can comprehend... That Jesus said, I'm going to set that aside and come take on the form of a servant. He says that he emptied himself. Sometimes people get hung up on it. What does it mean for God to empty himself? Is he setting something aside? Was he putting aside his divinity as he came as a man? Uh, that's not how Christians have historically understood this passage. Paul tells us that he emptied himself by uh, being found in the form of a servant, coming in the likeness of man. It wasn't that when the son came and Jesus was born on this earth, that he set aside anything that he was before. Rather, he emptied himself by become, making himself nothing, by taking on human flesh, by becoming not only fully God, which he always was, but also fully man. So that he came and experienced what it was like to be hunger, hungry and tired and be betrayed by friends and experience pain and want and all these things that he was too big for him, too great from God, cannot have these experiences, becomes as a man. Why? Paul says elsewhere that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that us, by his poverty, might become rich. You know, God could have remained at a safe distance from our troubles, but because we needed a Savior, he entered into our experience and came. The divine person took on a human nature and experienced all of these things. And that's why in Hebrews, 
Chapter 4, the author can say this of Jesus. He says that we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. One who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And it is on this basis that we then have the confidence to draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and to help in time of need. And see, that if Paul just like stops the comparison there, that's mind-blowing enough that God, the creator, would become a creature. Like that's an infinite distance for him to bridge for us. Yet Paul goes farther. He says that as God, Jesus became a man. But then as a man, Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That Jesus said, hey, I'm going to stoop to a death that is reserved for traitors and slaves and take that pain and that shame on myself in order that he can take his sins, or take my sins and shame on himself so that I could be adopted as a son and that we could be adopted into the family of God because of how Christ stooped, not just to come to this earth, but stooped all the way down and lived the life that I should have lived to die, a death that I deserve to die. So what then? Where, where does Paul go with this? If this is the example of Christ, we see he stooped all the way to death. What's next? Paul writes this. He says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As the Son was obedient to the Father, then the Father vindicates the Son and exalts him. And glorifies him. And this isn't like a higher level of glory than Jesus had before. It's not that he became more God than he was before the incarnation. We've already kind of hit on that. Now what this is, is kind of the fulfillment of Jesus' prayer in John 17. When he's about to go to the cross and he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is God returning back to heaven to be who he always was. And Paul elsewhere argues that uh, we can have confidence in our Christian walk no matter what comes our way in the midst of difficulties and troubles and tribulations because if God raised Christ from the dead and glorified him and we are unified with Christ, if we are found in Christ, then we can know our future is also secure because God will also glorify us and protect us. So Paul here, kind of looking at this passage as as a full, he argues that true spirituality, true faith in Christ has to move us towards loving unity with each other. And that that unity is only possible if I become a humble person so I'm able to do this and walk alongside you. And that humility that he calls us to is only possible by looking to the example of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So to wrap up, like, what do we walk out with this and do? Because it's great. Oh, be more humble. Okay, good. That sounds beautiful. How do we actually go about doing that this week? I think we can just take Paul's application as our own. You know, he, he lays it out. He says, because of what Christ did, we can look around and say, I don't want to act out of selfish ambition and conceit. Because of what Christ did for me, I don't have to have that as my motivations. And so we should ask the Spirit, God, how, how often do I do that? Like, show me where I'm acting, not out of concern for others or seeking your glory, but seeking my own glory or my own good. Like, when do I act and try and say, oh, this is, I'm doing this for me. I'm trying to make my name great rather than God's name great. In humility, count others as more significant than ourselves. You know, I I think often one of the ways that we do this and count kind of ourselves as more significant is we expect people to give us the benefit of the doubt and we refuse to extend that to other people. You know what I'm talking about? Um, Like if you're at a restaurant and you see somebody like just snap off at a waiter, you don't know that person from Adam, you're like, that is a jerk. You know, like, I can't believe that person would treat that person that way. But then if we're at the restaurant and we snap off the waiter, it's like, well, 
my kid was doing this and this happened at work. And like we give ourselves all of these reasons to say, oh, that, that, that really wasn't me. We don't extend others grace. And one of the biggest uh, enemies of our unity isn't the fact that you did something that caused me a hassle or caused me an issue. It's what I begin to allow myself to say and assume about your uh, motivations and why you did the thing you did. You know, for instance, like if we're leaving here in 30 minutes or, or whenever, you know, you, you get out to your car and one of you rear ends me, like that's a hassle. Like that's going to take a lot of time to fix, but I'm not going to just hold that against you in perpetuity because I don't think you did that on person, on purpose. Like I don't think anyone in here is like, eh, I didn't like that sermon, you know, into the back of my car. Um, you, people don't act that way. But so many times there are so many lesser trivial things that people do that kind of annoy us and they just eat at us because we say that person did that on purpose that person's trying to get back at me for this that person's doing these things you know and we say there is a reason they did that in order to make this friction and rather than going to that person and even just being honest and saying hey listen help me understand why this happened help me to just have this conversation so we can forget about move forward we just let these things eat on on us that's why you know i think it's in hebrews Uh, The author talks about a root of bitterness and just the destruction that can have because we allow these small roots to kind of come into our lives and just slowly over time destroy our unity before we even realize that that's what's taking place. So count others as more significant than ourselves. And then Paul gives us a second couplet. He says, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So this is one thing I think that in our history as a church in the recent past, uh, we can look and say, that's kind of what this looks like. I I wasn't here for this, but Hurricane Harvey, um, for those of you that were here a couple of years ago now when that happened, this church mobilized in a pretty incredible way. Like that was this thing, it was so big, I doubt anyone in this church was completely unaffected. Like I don't have anything to do uh, because of that hurricane. But even that, even in a time when our needs, your needs were maybe uh, more pressing than they often are, so many people in this church came together and said, hey, we're going to help those around us. And not only are we going to help the other people that we attend church with, we're going to go out into the community and do things with people we don't know and have never met and probably will never see them again or be benefited from this in any way. And so the church did a great job of this. But the interesting thing is, I think oftentimes this command is easier to follow like in times of crisis. Have you ever noticed that? Like it's sometimes easier to consider the interest of others when it's not life as usual. And I, I was thinking about this. I was like, why is that? Like, why is it easier for me sometimes to care and to, to act in a way when there's this massive thing comes through? And I think, and I, I don't know this for sure, but I wonder if the reason for that is because like a crisis or a catastrophe like blows up our routines and blows up our normal so that we can like step back and actually see what else is going on. Because the longer we kind of get in a routine and go through life, we just begin to have tunnel vision, don't we? And say, so I got to get these things done. I got to do this. I got to do this. And so we... we focus more and more. And so that when things come into our life that kind of knock us to the side or demand something of us, we, we feel like that's a huge inconvenience, even though it's not near as hard as going into a house and doing all the things that this church did for so many people. It doesn't come near the hours, but we just get so focused on this is my life, this is my routine, that it's hard to make space for others around us. And this is what Paul is asking us to. He's not saying, again, don't care about your interests. He's saying, go to work. Try and be successful in your career. Do excellent work. Go on vacation with your kids. Raise them well. Do sports. Do things. Go buy things uh, that you want, that you need. Like, go about your life. But as you go about your life, are you also trying to become a person that just picks their head up and says, okay, I've got my own interests, but what what other interests are nearby? What other things do people need that I can step out and go, hey, I'm going to take a moment and try and step into this with you? 
Again, this is one of the things that Jesus modeled for us so well. Like Jesus came down. His mission in life was to die for the sins of the world. Like anybody else got a job that important that you'll go to tomorrow? Probably not. You know, he had three years of walking with his disciples to mold them into a group of people that he could entrust within the mission. They weren't the sharpest tools in the shed. It was probably stressful, right? Like, it's difficult. But if you read the gospel stories, as he's going amongst his day, as he's trying to do what God has put in in front of him to do, he's never too busy for the people that interrupt him. He's constantly hearing people. God, I'm lame. Heal me. God, I'm blind. Can you help me? My son is sick. My daughter is sick. My daughter's dead. Can you help And over and over again, Jesus' response to that is always, yes, yes, I can. I'm not too busy for those that are around me. And so how do we reflect this in life? We reflect this in life by looking at what God has done for us in Christ, that if God could step farther than I'm ever going to be asked to step, then I can make these changes. I can become a person more like this through the work of his spirit. As we wrap up, there's one objection I think we have to hit on because it's something that kind of always jumps to the forefront of our mind when we talk about this, you know, putting others' needs ahead of our own. The thought is, well, if I do that, if I really try and live this way, it's beautiful, it sounds great, but if I try and do this, there are going to be people that take advantage of me. And it's a fair objection, right? Like we just talked about earlier, that we live in a world that the default mode of operation is that I'm going to use whatever resource I have to try and get ahead, and if I think I can use you to do that, then I am likely to try and do that at times. So we're going to see this. But two kind of pushbacks on that before we just jump there and kind of try and go, well, yeah, it's great, but it's just not going to work for me. One is that doesn't say we can't exercise wisdom. Like just because somebody says, hey, I need you to do this for me, doesn't mean that that's the exact way that you should actually go about meeting their interests and meeting their needs. Like the guy at the corner of the highway that's asking for money, um, the homeless guy, you're not going to be like, well, here, take my car. You know, like, that's not going to be your reaction. Like, use wisdom in a specific circumstance with specific individuals and say, God, how am I supposed to fulfill this commandment that you've called me to in light of this person and this set of circumstances? You know, you're not called to be an enabler to people with self-destructive habits. You're not called to do these things that sometimes go, oh, that must be what this is calling to. No, use wisdom to say, oh, how do I do what's best for this person now? And second, uh, we say, well, people might take advantage of me. So what? Like, seriously, so, so what's the concern there if that happens? Like, we talk about, Trent talks about a lot, that we want to live as a people that believes that Jesus rules and reigns over everything. And if that's true, like, if Jesus is in control of everything that happens, then what resource am I trying to follow after what he's called me to in danger of running out of? Like, what am I worried about? No, if, if I live the way Jesus has called me to, then I'm not going to get taken care of. In Luke 12, uh, Jesus tells his disciples this. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin, Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? Do not set your heart on what you should eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well.
Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. See, if my needs and my interests depend ultimately on my efforts to make sure that they're met, then this thing that Paul's saying, this, this calling and way of life, makes no sense. Because I need to make sure that my needs are met. But if, as Jesus says here, my needs and my interests don't depend on me, but depend on God to be faithful, then I'm freed up to live as God calls me to. Because if I'm living faithfully according to his calling and his example, then I can depend on the Lord to fight my cause and to take care of my needs. And I don't have to put those first because I can say, no, God will take care of me, so I'm going to go take care of others as he puts them in front of me that I'm able and so I think the challenge then is, do we trust him enough to take him up on this? As we walk forward and say, no, God, in this circumstance, I, it may end poorly for me in the short term, but I understand that you have it, and I'm trusting that you will bring glory to your name and good to me if I'm seeking to be faithful. Let's pray. Father, we again confess that this is something that uh, is easy to talk about for a few minutes, but is... Um, so hard to faithfully live out day to day. And so I just pray you would give us eyes uh, that look around and perceive the interest of others, that you would grant us patience, that we are able to make space for interruptions, that we are people that um, love well, that we love each other well, we have unity that's reflected from that, and that we love the world well, Lord. Uh, Make us a humble people that understands, hey, you know what? I'm not that big of a deal. If God came down for me, then I can do these things for others, and I can live in a way that puts others before me and trust you with the results.